WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio presents a Catholic focus on the 2016 election recorded at St. Patrick's Church in Wadsworth, Illinois on September 18th. The presentation was an initiative of the Faithful Citizenship Ministry at St. Patrick's in Wadsworth and featured Mary Fiorito, visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C., and Bob Gilligan, Executive Director of the Catholic Conference of Illinois. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Deacon Joe Casey, and first of all, on behalf of Father Merrill, our entire parish staff, and all the deacons, welcome everybody to St. Patrick's this afternoon. We're thrilled to have you join us for this presentation, which we think is going to be very special, very informative, and we also want to welcome our guests from friends from WSFI Radio. We've you may not have recognized them as you came in, but they're the ones you see over there at, I think, 88.5 on your FM dial. And we will have the, the presentation and then followed by some time for questions and answers. I think most of you realize, because we've said it an awful lot, that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has said and written in many cases that responsible citizenship is a virtue and participation in political life is a moral obligation to take this responsibility seriously, to become better informed in, in terms of, of what's going on. Today we welcome two very special guest speakers, one of whom had unfortunate delay, but she'll be here very, very shortly now. She's nearby and on the way, but we'll go ahead and begin. And that's Mary Fiorito. Mary happens to be a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center. She's an attorney, she's a public speaker and a commentator on issues involving women's leadership in the Catholic Church. She speaks to us today from a position of knowledge and authority, and I think we'll find that as we hear her. She's got a great deal of experience. She's been a director of pro-life activities for the Archdiocese of Chicago. She's been a vice chancellor if you don't know what a vice chancellor is, I'm not going to get into it right now, but it's an extremely important and significant position. Some would argue maybe the number three position in the archdiocese. She's been an executive assistant to the late Cardinal George. And so all of her professional experiences together give her this wealth of knowledge and insight, and we're thrilled to have her join us today. In addition to Mary, we've got Bob Gilligan with us today. Bob's the executive director of the Catholic Conference of Illinois. Bob has been in Springfield, kind of the voice of the, the Catholic bishops. And um, so he's extremely knowledgeable in terms of the political processes and especially with his work here in, in Illinois. And again, I think we find it very informative. Hand it over to Bob now. Thank, thank you again you. for coming. Thank you, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for coming, everybody. Here's what I want to do today. I'm going to try to move through some significant amount of information in a fairly short period of time because we want to hear what you have to say, and I'm sure you're going to have questions. Faithful citizenship is a complicated document. It's a lot, and I don't, I can't, we don't have the time to go into all of it, so I'm just going to hit the highlights of it, try to make this as interesting as possible. I'm going to tell you some things I want you to know right now. Number one, through this, I'm going to talk a little bit about the word truth. We've seemed to lost the essence of what that matters and what we do today. What the Catholic Church speaks about is truth. It's not emotional-based. It's not feelings-based. It's about the truth. 
spent a lot of time with Cardinal George. He came here once and did an interview with the guy on Channel 2, Jay Levine. And the very first interview he gave, Levine asked him what his feelings were and blah, blah, blah. And he said to him, Jay, I don't have any feelings. Let me tell you what this is about. Let me tell you the facts and the church's teachings. What I feel, well, the feelings is, are not really relevant. The very last press conference Cardinal George did, right before he passed away, Jay Levine asked, he says, Cardinal, what do you feel about what's such and such an issue? He said, Jay, I've been here for 19 years. When are you going to learn it's not about feelings and emotions, but it's about the truth and the gospel? And, he, and everybody laughed. And Levine kind of went, yeah, you got me. So the truth. I want to talk a little bit about the truth. Number one, this other Catholic virtue called prudence, very important on how to evaluate public policy issues. I'll talk about that. And third, as I mentioned earlier, this is something I think we all need a lot of, me included, courage. Courage to go out there and actually act on this. So we talk about courage as well. I want to talk a little bit now about faithful citizenship and about forming consciences for faithful citizenship. And once again, as you can see, this is the document that I want to refer to that's going to propel you to do act. And the very first thing in this thing talks about faith and reason and what we do to how we look about this. I want to say this at the outset with regard to this issue, with, with faithful citizenship and what it does. In my opinion, the church has more competence in certain moral, in certain moral issues than it does in every political issue. Let me give you an example of that. In my opinion... The life issue, the abortion issue, physician-assisted suicide, embryonic stem cell research, there is clear moral guidance that the church can provide on that topic. It's not that complicated. It's very simple. We are very clear on that issue. That's over here. 180 degrees. There are other political issues, though, that are out there that you will evaluate and determine how you cast your vote. I will use this as an example because it's on the top of my head. Donald Trump put out a tax package. He, he, he mentioned a whole bunch of uh, tax incentives. He's going to change the tax code. Honestly, in terms of faithful citizenship and some of the things that I'm going to be talking about, evaluating that is very difficult. I mean, for us to have a moral position on the tax code is tangential at best. Now, a lot of the issues are in the middle, though, and that's where the prudence value that we're going to talk about in a minute becomes important. And I think we've seen that a lot. For example, you may recall seven or eight years ago, a major issue was the Affordable Care Act, better known as Obamacare now, but at the Affordable Care Act in terms of what the position of the church was on that issue. Well, how did we come to the position that we came out? We evaluated, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops evaluated it on certain moral principles. And some of those moral principles we, we were clear about. Ultimately, the Bishop's Conference said that they felt that this was subsidizing the taking of an innocent human life. It was, it was subsidizing insurance plans that could be used to procure abortions. That aspect of that very complicated issue, we were opposed to. Other aspects of that issue, we were, we were conceptually supportive of. Extending health care to those people who don't have it. Helping the poor and most vulnerable. That was something else that we felt was a good in that particular proposal. But when we weighed everything on the principles, ultimately the bishops came out and opposed the bill as it was, but they did from a principled standpoint. So that's my point. I think certain aspects of these issues are more clear. The church is more competent in it than others. And that's what faithful citizenship is compelling us to do, is, is to try to evaluate different public policy issues based on the teachings of the church. Kind of an aside, I remember one point in time 
when there was a bill, and I can't remember, I was driving up here, I was trying to think of the bill, and I honestly can't remember what it was. And I remember talking to Cardinal George about it on the phone. It was one of those, like, we got to take a position on this. What do you want me to do? I'm in the hearing room. And the way it works in, the, in Springfield, it's kind of chaotic. So you're in this hearing room, and people are scurrying around, and i got to check a box, yes or no. And I remember him telling me the principles of this issue. And we're going back and forth. I'm like, Cardinal, there's not a box for principles. They want to know whether we're for it or against it. And that is difficult for the church sometimes because we don't fit into boxes neatly. It's, life is complicated. It's complex. Certain things I think we fit into more, more easily than other issues. So it's a struggle for us on how to always come up and we say, oh, we're for this and against this. I'm one of those unique individuals, though. I have a foot in both worlds. I have a foot in the church world, and that's my job, is to represent the bishop's positions in Springfield, which is an honor sometimes, but it's also a real challenge in that how do we fit into the political world where we oftentimes don't fit. There's that statement in Faithful Citizenship saying that Catholics sometimes are politically homeless. We don't fit into the Democratic Party. We don't fit into the Republican Party. We don't fit the label of conservative. We don't fit the label of liberal. We fit the label of of moral teachings and principles that you have to be familiar with enough in order to guide your conscience and how to make the best decision. That's a little bit of an overview of kind of faithful citizenship. The common good. This is one of the words I want you to become familiar with. If you're not, I think you need to know just kind of the general premise of what this word is about. As you read the definition, it's a term in Catholic social teaching that describes the sum total of conditions that allow each of us, us is a plural word, plural, to achieve our full potential. So what do we need in order to do that? Obviously, we need the right to life. We need to have adequate health care. We need to have access to education, housing, and all the things I've listed up there. And these decisions are made by politicians to figure out the true good in every situation. What is the true good here? when it comes to the life issue, when it comes to the marriage issue? What is the true good we're trying to achieve? And what's the best means of achieving it? Well, on some of those topics I mentioned at my, on the outset of my talk there, immigration reform, perhaps health care, we can come to maybe different conclusions about the best means to achieve it. There may not be one mean to achieve it. In order to get health care to everybody who needs it, you may think it's a tax credit for everybody, and so you can go out and buy your own health care. As long as it meets the moral framework, it doesn't involve the taking of a human life and that kind of thing, well, okay. You may think it's an individual government plan that the government provides. And as long as it doesn't involve taking of a human life or subsidizing it, I mean, those are different means of achieving the same goal, right? So prudence tells us about the right ways to achieve it. These things are arguable. So my point is there's not clear moral guidance in some of these issues. There's aspects of it. But you have to use what they call prudential judgment. And that's what we're talking about here. I want to just mention, too, the other virtues that I put in here. I said prudence is a virtue, right? The other virtues that I rattle off there are justice, charity, wisdom, courage, again, to emphasize that point, and mercy. Tolerance is not a virtue. The mainstream media wants you to think that tolerance is a virtue. No, it is not a virtue. I'm sorry. Wisdom is something to point out. Wisdom, I want to just mention this, in my personal opinion. Wisdom begins with the fear of God. No fear of God, no wisdom. That's probably why we're in the situation we're in today in large part. Fear of God, very little of it, very little wisdom going on in our society today. So that's a little bit about some of those points I just wanted to mention in terms of truth, the conscience formation, that kind of thing. So now we're going to go into making moral choices. Look, as I said three times already, right, this is complicated stuff. Decisions about political life, they're complex. 
And what do they need? They need a well-formed conscience aided by prudence, which is the very reason to determine that that's how we, using reason to determine the true good and using the right means to achieve it, that prudence exercise. Where do we start with the exercise of our conscience? We have to oppose laws that weaken the right to life. That's where we have to start at all times. There's no arguing that. Those laws out there that weaken the protection for right to life, we have to oppose those. We have to oppose those things. We have to support human life. So that's how we start the exercise of our conscience. Those who knowingly and willingly support policies or legislation that undermine the moral principles, they are cooperating with evil. And that's right out of faithful citizenship. There's two distortions in public life, though, that can distort the church's teachings about life and dignity of the human person. So some people say, all the issues are the same. I'm comfortable with issue C, D, and E, but I can't oppose A. We hear that all the time, right? I, can't, I don't oppose abortion, but I believe in supporting all these other things such that abortion is not needed. That doesn't cut it, okay? That doesn't cut it. There was a, a man named Doug Kimmick who wrote a book eight years ago, and that was the premise of his book. I remember one time Mr. Kimmick was speaking in Chicago, and I got a phone call from Cardinal George saying that, can you go down there and listen to exactly what he's saying? Because it was all in his book. So I go down there. I'm with a bunch of students from UIC and me. Well, that was a very interesting conversation. He regretted I ever showed up that day. But that was Kimmick's premise, is that if we're affording health care to people who need it, if, if the government is providing all of these other solutions to, to problems, well, you don't have to oppose abortion, because if we do all these things, then abortion won't be needed. We, we, we won't even have that. That, that. that doesn't cut it. And you heard that a lot about eight to ten years ago. That, that is a fundamental flaw. So that's something in faithful citizenship. It's right in the text of the document. The other thing that people do is say, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a big pro-life person. I'm, I'm against abortion, etc. But you don't get engaged. They don't get engaged in those other issues that help people achieve the means that they need to become the per per person that God intended to them. They need the right to an education, right? They need health care. They need those sort of things. So both of those things, you hear people distorting the church's teaching, and it's right in faithful citizenship that we're not supposed to be doing that. I think this is an important point to, to focus on. This is in paragraph 36, and it talks about what to do in the situation where there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's, there's no clear-cut answer here. You have two candidates that both are supporting morally objectionable policies, probably strong, strong, what we would term pro-choice candidates. What, what do you do in that situation? I think faithful citizenship is trying to address that. It's trying to give us some guidance, and it says, well, it's okay not to vote for either of them. It's also okay to look at them and say, is there a candidate that you can support which is the lesser of, of the two evils? Can you, can, you can do that. That's something that, that the document talks about. So I urge you to look at that paragraph 36 because that's in there as well. So that's a little bit about faithful citizenship real quick. I, like I said, I want to go over a lot of those points about truth, prudence, common good, and that sort of thing. So now what I'd like to do is kind of go over some of the seven tenets of Catholic social teaching. And Mary and I are going to try to do this sort of together. I don't normally make such... Uh dramatic entrances when I, when I give a talk. I can sum it up by saying I'm currently looking for religious orders that will accept eight-year-olds. If any of you know of one, you can talk to me afterwards. I'm very happy to be back here, actually. As I pulled in, I realized about 10 years ago, I think, I came and I spoke at all the masses here. 
during Respect Life Month when Father Pat Cecil was the pastor. So it's lovely to be back with you again. I don't know if any of you were, were back here at that time, but I really enjoyed being here with your community. Since Cardinal George passed away, I'm no longer working with the Archdiocese. I was at the time when I was speaking here. I'm now, I have the privilege of holding a fellowship position that's named in the Cardinal's honor. So I'm the Francis Cardinal George Fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center, which is a think tank in Washington, D.C. So part of my work is to hopefully carry on in public some of the what were the Cardinal's priorities, especially around issues concerning human life and religious liberty. So part of what I'm doing now is giving talks like this with people like Bob or on my own to help educate Catholics and others about ways in which the church tries to inform the common good. So this is a particularly quirky election year, isn't it? I think that's probably the most charitable way you can sum it up. I think never before have you had so many people so conflicted over candidates that for a whole variety of reasons make, I think, everybody sort of uncomfortable. So the way in which I have been trying to approach this topic in conversations with my family or my friends are not only, first of all, to start, of course, with, with what the church would tell us about particular issues and to start with faithful citizenship because it is such a good document and a thorough document, but also sort of connect, take the, the drama out of the personalities of the candidates that we have right now is to look at the party platforms, okay? So the party platforms really kind of mold and direct what a candidate is going to do once he gets into, he or she is going to do once they get into office, right? So you have the candidates themselves, and then you have the platforms, of course, which back up those candidates and sort of serve as a template for what they hope to achieve legislatively and practically and otherwise during their tenure as, as the four year of president, the four years of president. So issues that would be important to Catholics in terms of the platform issues would be obviously human life issues, whether that's abortion or euthanasia, the appointment of judges to the Supreme Court, because that, of course, can direct, particularly for issues right now concerning religious liberty and marriage, can really set the, the, the course off on a different direction. Global warming and climate change, and this comes after Pope Francis released Laudato Si, our care for the common home of our environment and the world, education and school choice, healthcare, how, how healthcare, as Bob alluded to this a little bit in Faithful Citizenship, how healthcare is delivered to, to our fellow brothers and sisters, marriage, obviously marriage redefinition and other issues surrounding marriage is of critical importance to the church. Issues involving immigration would be another issue that the church would obviously have great concern for. So I think it's really helpful There's, if you just Google party platforms. I think sort of part, being an educated voter would be to go through and to look at the different what they call planks in the party platform because that really gives you, again, the template that the candidates are going to be working from. And that's what the... And in evaluating the candidates, what they say, but also what their parties are saying, because that obviously, just in the presidential, you have all the Republicans, all the Democrats who are at some degree are saying, well, this is part of our party's platform. This is, this is the team I'm on, and this is what the team believes. They may deviate from those things as individuals, which you have to discern, but the party platform is what you want to look at as well. And how do we, how do we go about analyzing those sort of things? One of the ways we do that is we look in through the lens of, of Catholic social teaching. There's basically seven themes or seven principles of Catholic social teaching. What we're trying to do, once again, as we evaluate the, the seven themes, we go back to those things that I just talked about. Focusing on the common good. Grounded in truth. Guided by a formed and informed conscience. Informed of the gravity of each moral choice that I talked about. And framed by Catholic social teaching. So there are basically seven principles of Catholic social teaching that we'll just talk about briefly. And the way I was taught about this 
is that these are almost like building blocks, okay? You have to start with a foundation, and then you build on that foundation. And the first foundation, the first principle of Catholic social teaching is the life and dignity of the human person. And that you should all be familiar with is because it basically says that life is sacred from conception to natural death. Well, why do we believe this? Is because we're all made in the image and likeness of God. So this is the fundamental principle of Catholic social teaching. Without this, all the others are not even relevant. Well, because we have no life, we don't have to worry about all those other sort of things. So the way we are talking about this is that this is a fundamental teaching of Catholic social teaching, which is how does every institution defend and protect the life and dignity of the human person. So as Bob alluded to, your other rights really don't mean a whole lot. Your right to education doesn't mean very much if you're not allowed to enjoy it anyway because you're not alive. So it really is a very key issue. And to sort of go back to something Bob alluded to earlier and, and one of the distortions of Catholic teaching about all issues being equal, often people will refer to this as the consistent ethic of life. And that was a term that was coined by the late Cardinal Bernadine, who was our Archbishop prior to Cardinal George. Many of you remember him. He was responsible for creating sort of this, this teaching around all life being worth, worthy of protection and respect, and that there were different ways that we as a Catholic pro-life community would respond to some of the different issues. And sometimes Cardinal Bernadine is accused of making all the issues equal. In fact, there was something I saw that was written by somebody in the Wall Street Journal about a year ago that said that Cardinal Bernadine equated immigration reform with yeah. abortion. Oh, no, it was the minimum wage. Yeah, it was minimum an article wage. that said that Cardinal Bernadine said that the minimum wage and abortion were moral equals, which he didn't say. He never said. So I know this personally and professionally because for about seven years, I was Cardinal Bernadine's pro-life spokesperson. Cardinal Bernadine is the person who hired me. So I know very well what he said. And in fact, it was, I'm so glad I saved this newspaper interview. He was interviewed in the National Catholic Register in June of 1988, and he was specifically asked that question. Didn't you say, haven't you said that all these issues are equal? And he said, no. He said, I have never said, he said, I've said the issues are linked. I've never said they are equal, and, and I'm almost quoting this verbatim. And he said, I know that people on the left, he said, I'm sorry to have to use that label, but that's what it kind of comes down to. Some people on the left have tried to take the consistent ethic and distort it into saying that I've said abortion and all these other issues are equal, so don't hold anybody's feet to the fire on abortion. And these are his exact words. That's a misuse of the consistent ethic, and I deplore it. What Cardinal Bernadine was saying was that the issues are not all equal, but that they are linked. And so you fast forward a couple of years later when John Paul II wrote Evangelium Vitae, which is kind of considered really the, the pro-life blueprint for the church, where he also mentions different issues. For example, Evangelium Vitae isn't only about abortion. He talks about capital punishment in it. He talks about euthanasia in it. He talks about reaching out to women who have had abortions in it. So Pope John Paul II, St. John Paul II, also linked all of these life issues, saying that we as a community have to be concerned about them all. But it is not fair and it's not accurate to say that either the Catholic Church or the consistent ethic or our pro-life teaching allows you to say, I'm really for immigration reform and a minimum wage hike, so therefore I really don't have to be worried about what this candidate says about mm -hmm. abortion. That's absolutely not true. So that's the first tenet of, of Catholic social teaching, life and uh, dignity of the human person. The next one is the call to community. Okay, so we have life. It's been protected. We're born. How do we organize society? The basic building block of our society is the family. 
And this is why the church is so outspoken about protection of the family in terms of uh, the marriage issue is number one, is that marriage is the, def- is the union between one man and one woman. It is how we profess our faith. It's how we transmit our values. It's how we, we influence the culture for future generations. Sometimes this has been a particularly contentious issue, I think even among Catholics, about why the church was so opposed to the redefinition of marriage. Because when you say that the differences between men and women don't matter, right, that the biological and sexual expression of who we are, who God created us to be, don't matter, then we're really taking part of God's creation and we're rejecting that. We're saying the fact that a man and a woman are different doesn't really matter. And the fact that marriage is to be a conjugal union doesn't really matter. So we're taking actually the meaning, as Cardinal George used to say, you know, the state didn't invent marriage and the state has no right to redefine marriage. And also we need to look towards the good of children. As Bob mentioned, the family, it's the basic building block not only of the church but also of community. Children need both a father and a mother. And that argument, I think, resonated very well initially because people would say, oh, yeah, that's right. You know, my son does respond to me than he does to my husband or vice versa. So we know just from psychologists and what psychiatrists tell us and just kind of what our human hearts tell us that men and women are different, that children deserve to have both a mother and a father, and that, frankly, if you go back and look at marriage law in the United States, and if you went back and read some of the amicus briefs in the latest Supreme Court decision on marriage, you'll see that really the the state, the government, really isn't interested in your romantic relationships. They're really not, and they shouldn't be. The state only began to become involved in marriages in order to legally tie and bind men who fathered children to the children themselves so that there would be legal obligations, legal ties, right, between men and women who had children and the children themselves. That's why the state got involved in giving out marriage licenses, not because it wanted to acknowledge your particular affection and love for your spouse, although, you know, I hope you have that, but that's not why the state doesn't care about your romantic relationships. But we've so skewed the nature of marriage now to really just make it about affection or love or possibly commitment that we've actually lost the real meaning of marriage. And that's why the church is so concerned about it. Is it because we're bigoted? No. Is it because we don't want people to be happy? No. It's because we are concerned about children and the way in which children are brought up to understand not only who God is, but who they themselves are. The next principle of Catholic social teaching is about rights and responsibilities. So, like I said, this is the building block here now. We have protection for human life. We are born into society. We're organized in such a way. We're organized in a way with a mother and a father and a child. And so now what do each of us need to order to achieve the person that God intended us to? Well, we have certain rights in terms of the moral teaching of the church. These are not necessarily legal rights, but these are moral rights. We have a right to basic food, shelter, education, employment, housing. How we get those things matters of prudential judgment, but the church does believe with, we, we have a certain right to those things. With rights, and this is something I think that we're glossing over a lot in our society, though, is with rights come responsibilities, and the church teaches, yes, you have a right to certain things, but with those rights also become the responsibilities to be standard bearers of that, of that particular right. We often talk about this in terms of the right to practice one's faith. Practicing one's faith, and this is, again, we're getting some of the public perception of the First Amendment skewed, and intentionally, I would say, The freedom of religion and the freedom of worship are not the same thing, okay? They are different things. As Cardinal George would always say this, Stalin allowed freedom of worship. 
You could go to church. Stalin let you go to church on Sunday, but you could not be a Christian or an Orthodox Christian or a Catholic or a Jew in the public square, okay? You could not practice your faith publicly, but you could go to church on Sunday. This is something that in one of the party platforms I'm, I'm getting more and more concerned about because I have heard one of our candidates mention over and over again freedom of worship, which is not freedom of religion, okay? They're two very, very different things. You are allowed, as a person of faith in this country, to receive from the government what's called a reasonable accommodation for you to practice your faith, okay? This was the entire reason this country was founded. It was found, that's why you'll hear some lawyers who specialize in First Amendment law call religious liberty and religious freedom the first freedom, because it really is why the United States was founded. The pilgrims who came here wanting to live their faith in a public way, as they chose, without being persecuted by the government for it. And when you hear about the separation of church and state, what that means is that a state can't have a particular religion established. So Illinois can't be like the Catholic state, right? You can't have a state religion. But it doesn't mean that people who are religious cannot practice their faith in the public square. I mean, has anyone ever said to you, or should they, when you go into that voting booth, I don't want you to take your religious values into that voting booth. I don't want you to think about the poor. I don't want you to think about how your children are going to be educated. I don't want you to think about child abuse, or I don't want you to think about anything else that might be considered a Catholic issue when you go in to vote. No, of course not. It's silly to think that we can divorce ourselves from what we do here in church on Sunday and what we do with our public lives in the rest of the week. So the state cannot force you to violate your conscience, okay? It cannot force you, if you are a doctor, to perform abortions or to prescribe contraception or to give somebody a dose of something to help them die at the end of life. The state cannot make you violate your conscience. And what we are seeing now with some of the, the lawsuits and some of the new laws that are being proposed is a real infringement on religious freedom. And if your viewpoint's unpopular, all the more reason why the government should step in and protect your viewpoint. The next tenet of Catholic social teaching has to do with something I think everybody in this room should be familiar with, the preferential option for the poor. So what that says, basically, all things being equal, that the poor have our, the first claim on our resources. We've been brought up with this from the time we've been, we, we've been born into the Catholic faith. The economy exists to serve people. It's not the other way around. People do not serve the economy. So the poor, like I said, have the first claim on our resources. Dorothy Day, who wrote about this so eloquently, talked about the virtues of charity and justice. She talked about people trying to move along walking, and she said, like, it's, it's like one leg is charity, the other leg is justice. We're called to be charitable to the poor, to give what we have, but we're also called to justice, which means to try to change the laws and change policies such that the poor don't need that charity that they so often need. So the basic test of a society, the moral test of a society, is how the poor and the vulnerable are faring. This really is going to be a key issue for this election that I think everyone needs to be well informed about, and that's about something called the Hyde Amendment. The Hyde Amendment for the last 40 years, and Henry Hyde, a congressman from the great state of Illinois, who had, it was part of an appropriations bill, yes? Yes, it, uh, was, it was part appropriate. of the, So yep. put on, tacked on to the appropriations bill that no federal funding could go to fund abortions, right? So that abortion, if people want to have one, the government won't interfere. However, the government, that people have no claim on your private dollars for an elective procedure. You don't have to pay for someone else's abortion. And this has enjoyed wide bipartisan support for the last 40 years. Now, in this particular election cycle, 
at the Democratic National Convention, they instituted a new plank. They put a new plank into their platform that I think has to concern everybody, whether you're a Democrat or Republican, and that was for the repeal of the Hyde Amendment. And this has concerned even people, even diehard Democrats I know are very, very concerned about this new plank. They want to overturn Hyde and have wide and, and basically unrestricted funding to, to go to anyone who wants an abortion who can't pay for a surgical abortion. So this is going to be a problem on a number of different fronts. First and foremost is because it's going to increase the number of abortions exponentially. We have right now, I think it's like one abortion every 25 seconds in the United States. Can you imagine if they're free for anyone who wants them, right? Of course, if you're going to make something free, you're going to have more of it. It's also going to make it more difficult for women who have then had abortions to sort of recover from that. I mean, the trickle-down effect of more abortion in society is, is just, like I said, exponentially bad because it just affects everyone, the ripple effect of, of so many abortions. It also pulls all of us into something that we cannot morally become involved in. So this was something that was announced at the, at the Democratic National Convention. And then just last week, you're going to see sort of a building PR campaign on behalf of those people who want to publicly fund abortions. There were two ads taken out in both the Chicago Tribune and the Chicago Sun-Times, as well as in major newspapers. A lot of you are nodding your heads. You saw this by a very oxymoronically named group called Catholics for Choice, who are basically, they're a pro-abortion lobbying group based in Washington, D.C. They're heavily funded by the billionaire George Soros, as well as Warren Buffett, heavily fund them. It's an office of maybe, I don't know, 10 people, something like that. They're two top executives, make well over $200,000 a year. But there were these ads with people who claim to be Catholic calling for a repeal of the Hyde Amendment and saying that as an imperative of what they called social justice, the Catholic faith demands that we publicly pay for other people's abortions. So, I mean, have you ever heard of anything so crazy? That was followed up in the newspapers by editorials written by people from the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, also calling for the repeal of Hyde as a matter of justice for the poor. So this is something that is going to build up. This is on top of the Democratic Party saying they're changing their plank in the platform, and this is really something that they are going to be pushing. Again, it's a, it's a huge concern for a variety of different reasons. For, for us at Catholics, what, what we look at is... Does this really help women who are poor? Or does this further sink them into poverty? As I was saying to somebody, after a poor woman has an abortion, does she have a better job the next day? Mm-hmm. Does she all of a sudden have childcare for her existing children the next day? Is her relationship with her husband or her, her boyfriend, whoever the baby's father is, is that any better the next day? Does she have a new job the next day? I mean, of course not. None of the social problems that we were told back before Roe would be solved by abortion, have ever been solved by abortion, right? That's why we have still, we have such a high abortion rate. And why now in the United States, the repeat rate for abortions is now 50%. That's the repeat rate. So that's women having their second, third, fourth. There's no legal limit on the number of abortions you can have. And so if abortion was this great solution to social problems, why is the repeat rate now, even after eight years of a, of a Democratic president and social justice programs being, as, as at least we're being told, that these safety nets for the poor are being expanded, why is the abortion rate still so high? And why is the repeat rate still so high? It's important that we talk about this under that notion of what's the preferential option for the poor. So is this, as Mary indicated, is this really helping the poor? No, it's not. Does anybody feel better after the abortion? How come? That, that logic is fundamentally flawed. If you think about it, after the abortion, is, is that person lifted out of poverty? Because that's the notion that they're trying to sell that on. This will help, help this, this helps the poor. It doesn't help the poor. It adversely impacts the poor. So 
Let's just move to the next couple things. We'll run through the next ones fairly quickly. The next tenet of Catholic social teaching is the rights of workers. It has to do with work and the expression of work and how we find our creativity. So Catholic social teaching says that human dignity finds its expression in work. Work is more than just a paycheck. It's where we go to, to display our talents, to, to, to learn, to develop our skills. It's more than just making a living. This started with the Pope Leo the Twenty-Third when he was writing about oppressive working conditions back in the 1800s, and the church spoke out about child labor laws and saying that wor- workers have a right to just wages, they have a right to organize, they have a, work th- a right to safe working conditions. And so this is why we do get involved in some of these issues that help workers organize and, and speak out for uh, adverse living condition, uh, working conditions. The next one I want to mention real fast is solidarity, the Catholic social teaching on solidarity. Once again, to kind of review, we talked about the first principle about life, we talked about marriage, we talked about rights, we talked about preferential options for the poor, we talked about workers' rights, and now we're talking about something we all should be reminded of. This is a universal Catholic church. What happens here in Wadsworth influences what happens across the globe. We are one human family, and so we think about our friends and relatives and our, our neighbors across the world. This is why the, the church is so outspoken. Some, some international issues talk about welcoming the stranger in documents that the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops has put out. It's why the church has been so vocal about uh, advocating for debt relief for certain African countries in order to help their standard of living. So our public policies, what we do here, just don't influence what happens here locally. They influence what happens nationally and across the world. So it's something that we should be very concerned about. And finally, this is something that Mary alluded to earlier, it's getting a lot of attention under Pope Francis, care for God's creation. Laudato Si is something that came out recently, Pope wrote, talking about our common home. And so he's trying to call attention to what we're doing to the earth. And the church teaches that we're just stewards of the earth. We're not here forever. We have to leave the earth. We have to leave the conditions for future generations. So we have to be mindful of pollution. We have to be mindful of of how our, our food is grown. We have to be mindful of all these things. One of the things that, when I first took this job, there was a lot of, this is a state-level issue, there was a lot of concern about mega hog farms going on in Springfield. And recently, it's kind of come back, recently, an issue in Springfield, that is. And especially in rural areas, which you'll probably appreciate a lot more than, than me, I'm more of a city dweller, is it was really enlightening to me and making me understand sort of how, where our food comes from, how it's created, and, and how it gets to, to, to people in urban areas. Because as a city dweller, I will tell you, I don't think of that. I go to the local grocery store, and I'm buying stuff probably based on price and that sort of thing. Where it comes from and how it's grown is not something I think about. And the church is saying we should think about that. Because especially in the United States, our roots are more agrarian and rural than they are urban. And urban centers, I think we're losing that. We're losing our notion of what it means to where our food comes from, how it's grown, what kind of environmental degradation can occur in it. My story about the mega hog farms was that what's going on in rural Illinois, not so much here, but maybe downstate is where hog farms are. And they're creating a stench that can be smelt for miles. It makes unliving conditions. The discharge from, from the hog farms is going into the water table, which is creating some environmental problems. And I think the Pope sees that, and the church sees that, not only in the United States, but throughout the world. And they're calling our attention to it because, especially as many of us as urban dwellers, need to be more aware of our common home. And it was what causing is like going pig, on. pig disease, was it? Yeah, like all sorts of problems. Yeah, it was causing yeah. 
happened to go with my fourth grader to, to visit a farm way downstate, and they were hog farmers. And so they took us and they showed us how before we went in, to see, you had to shower in, and then you have to shower out. Because if any of the germs, it's like going in to see a, a baby in the hospital or something. Remember a couple of years ago when the bacon prices went way up? That was why. It was because of the hog disease. It came from contaminated water. And, and a lot of people were very concerned when the Holy Father issued Laudato Si, saying, is he just some kind of crazy tree hugger? Or what's, what is this all about? But if you have been in South American countries where people do not have regular access to clean water, you would understand why he would make this a priority. In order, I mean, for people simply just to get a drink of clean water, what some people have to go through. Again, you have to remember this is a, this is a pope who's been very conditioned by seeing extreme poverty in South America that you and I, even in the poorest neighborhoods here, will never see the kind of poverty that people who are living there. So it's, it was a very comprehensive issue, global warming and what he was talking about, climate change and our care for the common good and our care for the earth. But I had to give a talk on this particular document at Loyola's Law School last year. And so I read it through very carefully a couple of times, which took many days because it's a lengthy document. It's probably, it's the longest papal encyclical I think like ever written. It is long. However, he makes some very good points in there about things like abortion and contraception and overpopulation. And he said, if people tell you that it's people who are the problem, that it's babies who are the problem, then they are wrong. People are not the problem. It is making sure that we get the right resources to the people who need them, that we all work together as a human family. But I was very grateful that he took such a strong stand, that abortion is not the solution to this. Overpopulation is not a problem in this world. It is a disparity between the resources that people need and the people themselves. I want to make a concluding point about faithful citizenship. And I want you to read this quote up here. This is from, you may recall, he's now Archbishop Chaput. At the time he wrote this, Bishop Chaput was in Denver. And he wrote a book back in, it was either 04 or 08 election cycle. I can't remember. They're all kind of blending together now. It's called Render Unto Caesar. And these two particular quotes I, I've, I've found interesting. They struck me, and I think I'll read them. Catholics, in particular, take their church seriously and act on her teaching in the world. Somebody, and often somebody with power, they won't like it. As American Catholics, most of us have food to eat and work that puts cash in our pockets. We have money to build churches, access to lawmakers, and talented individual people in our communities. Our achievements and hard work give us a unique power to bear witness to the gospel. But we often face enormous counter-pressures to stay silent, to compromise on matters of justice, to go along with the fashionable opinion. And this is just as true for bishops and other clergy as it is for Catholics at every level of public life. And that's from Render Unto Caesar. I, I put that up there because these are challenging times. We marched through sort of the seven principles of Catholic social teaching. We brought up some issues that are all very challenging. And I started my talk today by saying that one of the things I wanted you to become familiar with is some of the, the, the principles of Catholic social teaching, but also to encourage you to get more involved in the political process. I can tell you, and we're going to go over this in a second, that to the degree that we do not, and the degree that we do not act on our values, I can assure you that there are others that are and will do so. And those are generally people that you probably would not agree with. And I think right now what's going on in our society, in our culture, is that I think we, we need more good folks involved in the political process, not less. That's really, to me, what faithful citizenship is all about. It's encouraging you to get more involved in the political process and not less. So with that said, what I'd like to do is talk a little bit about kind of Springfield, Washington. And just so you know, well, this is kind of like what you guys are dealing with. And many of you may know this. So here's what's going on in Springfield. The Illinois House has 118 members. Right now, there's 71 Democrats and there's 47 Republicans. 
We, we don't, we think we're pretty sure there's about 30 to 40% are Catholic. Some are very open about telling you they're Catholic. Some are Catholic and sometimes don't really act like it. And others just, we don't know. So this is kind of our best guess. That's about the percentage. The Senate is 59 members, 39 Democrats, 20 Republicans, same ratio. Those names up there, you should recognize. If you don't, you should know that. John Cullerton is the Senate president. He's been there for 29 years. Chris Rodonio from Lamont, she's a Republican Senate leader. She's been for 29 years. You may have heard of this name once or twice. His name is Mike Madigan. He's the Speaker of the House. He's been there for 46 years. Jim Jerkin has only been there for, he's been in office two years, but he's been in that position for two years. So there's 118 people in the Illinois State House. This is kind of what I'm most familiar with. 59 Senate members, but only 40 of them are for re-election. So that's what's going on now. The next slide I want to talk about real briefly is I want to accent this for a couple reasons. These are called super PACs. You've heard of this. This is, this is Illinois state government. This is not federal, okay? This is Illinois. These are the top 10 PACs. PACs are groups that you can give unlimited sums of money to. These guys have a lot of influence. Liberty PAC is a more of a conservative Republican PAC. It's got about $5 million helping elect folks. Turnaround Illinois is similar. I'm going to stop at the third one, personal PAC. If you don't know what personal PAC is, you should know because it's important. Personal PAC is basically Planned Parenthood's political action committee. They raise a significant sum of money, and they support legislators, and they oppose legislators for, for election and re-election. They're the third top PAC in the state of Illinois. That is significant. I was, I was talking to Mary on Friday when we were getting ready for this, and unfortunately, I couldn't find their questionnaire. I apologize. I had a friend of mine in office, and he used to send it to me every year and say, he used to joke about it. But what they do... This is a pro-abortion, anti-life, political action committee that raises significant sums of money. And what they do is they send surveys to every member running. And you have to complete it. I mean, it's, you're up to you whether you want to complete it or not. They play to win. So if you don't complete it, you're against them all the way. They just can conclude that you're not for them. You're against them. If you complete it and you don't get them all right, in other words, you don't agree with them 100% of the way, you're not with them. But if you complete it right, if you're with them all the way, they will endorse you and they will fund you. I can tell you the way they play in Springfield, they are very influential. And it's one of the reasons we're having so many problems on the life issue and the marriage issue is because of groups like Personal PAC. Some of you may know a state senator who's no longer in office. His name is Dan Duffy. Um, if you want to ever talk about the hazards of dealing with Personal PAC, talk to Dan Duffy. He had a heck of a time with Personal PAC and he was running for office. These guys are really, really difficult for us to deal with. They are cutthroat. And they're also very extreme. They're also very extreme. very extreme. So these are not just kind of, we'd like to keep abortion legal people. These are abortion for all nine months for any reason whatsoever. And, oh, Catholic hospitals, you should be at least referring for abortions if, uh, if not them. doing them. This is one of their end goals, is to make sure that our Catholic hospitals, our Catholic health care clinics, and that every Catholic doctor and nurse in the state of Illinois should either be doing abortions or you should be referring for abortions. And in fact, Governor Rauner just signed a bill back in July that is going to require Catholic hospitals and Catholic doctors and Catholic pro-life pregnancy centers to refer women to abortion clinics, okay? I mean, think of the violation of conscience this is for someone like Bonnie here sitting in the front row who's a nurse in the pro-life movement who's working at a pregnancy center clinic and a young girl comes in and says, gosh, I don't know really what to do. This new law requires Bonnie to say, 
let me get you directions to Planned Parenthood. I mean, it all but makes Bonnie put the person in her car and drive her over there to have her abortion. These are the kinds of violations of conscience that groups like Personal Pack are working towards. It is, they, it's absolutely insidious, and as Bob has mentioned to you, they can take a candidate, a good, solid, decent person who works hard on behalf of the citizens of this state, and with those mailers, those really annoying mailers you get in, <laughs> Personal Pack has millions of dollars, and they will flood every single mailbox in that person's district and make them seem like they're absolute monsters. And so it's, it's really, really important to understand who they are and to understand when you go to vote what 100% endorsement from personal PAC means, okay? That means a very, very extreme pro-abortion view, no exceptions. If you're a mom and your teenage daughter is pregnant, they don't want you to know if she has an abortion. It's just, it is absolutely opposed to any kind of reasonable health or safety protection for women, protection for parents, for their minor daughters, and protections for religious institutions and conscience rights. Here's just a couple of the issues that we're going to be dealing with next year, just so you know. Mary talked about Catholics for Choice, the ad that was in the paper. That's more of a federal issue, taking on the Hyde Amendment. But also we're going to deal with a similar thing in Illinois, House Bill 4013. We're very concerned about this. This calls for state funding of abortions. Right now, Illinois does not have state funding of abortions. We'd like to keep it that way. House Bill 4013, it's very close. We're very concerned about the lame duck session. So there's an election on November 8th. After that, they're going to meet for a little while. Those periods of time scare us to death because who knows what happens at a lame duck session. You ran and you lost and you, you won. Well, suddenly you're not beholden to your district. It's almost like you can do anything and it's Katie bar the door. It's a very nervous time for us. So House Bill 4013, we're very nervous about that. We're trying to make, redouble our efforts to make sure that they don't have the votes to pass that in the lame duck session. Physician-assisted suicide, we know that that is passed in California. It's on the ballot in Colorado. It was not introduced here in Illinois last session. We're concerned about that coming here. The American Medical Association now is looking at their position on that issue. That very issue very much concerns us what's happening in the future there. The other issues, funding for social services. You may remember, well, you know that the state of Illinois, the budget situation is very bad. And so Catholic Charities had a hard time getting funding for some of its services. So that will continue to be an issue and a challenge for us as we go forward at the state level. And then the opportunity tax credit, it's, that, that's kind of code word for a, a, a voucher type bill that we're proposing. It's actually not a bill. It's something we want to put in the budget. You may know this, Illinois, I know Joe knows this, that Illinois has a $500 tax credit that you're eligible for if you send your children to a non-public school. We're trying to double that to $1,000. And in addition, what we're trying to do is create a pool of funds. You've heard of Big Shoulders, perhaps, which is a, an entity in the archdiocese that people can donate money to, and that funds scholarships for middle and low-income students. What we're trying to do is instead of right now there's a deduction for a donation to Big Shoulders, we're trying to make it a credit. So we would enhance the amount of money to fund scholarships for low-income children. It's been done in Florida, Iowa, and other states, but it's been very successful. The First Amendment Defense Act, I do think that's is going to be an issue that you will, if I had to pick one of something that's going to be the most sort of spun to make it look as if Catholics are bigots and hateful people, it's going to be this First Amendment Defense Act, which is going to bar the federal government from discriminating against anyone who, based upon their religious convictions and beliefs, believe that marriage is the union of a man and a woman. So you can't be discriminated. Like, for example, the Catholic Church cannot be discriminated against because we do not perform marriages between two men or two women in our church. 
churches, right? Or Catholic schools cannot be discriminated against because in our classes, we teach that marriage is a union of a man and a woman, okay? We're going beyond now, unfortunately, in the law, the kind of laissez-faire, let everyone just do what they want, to actually persecuting people who hold the viewpoint that our church does and Orthodox Jews do and evangelical Christians do. So this would be a law that would protect people who simply want to live out their convictions in the public square. For example, you look, I think, sort of the the best local example is Chick-fil-A, Chick-fil-A restaurants, because the the owners are evangelical Christians who are very much interested in the issue of marriage from both a societal and religious perspective. And we had, in the state of Illinois, Mayor Emanuel going so far as to say Chick-fil-A does not represent Chicago values, as if When you come to do a business here, you have to check your values, what you believe religiously, with members of government who will then approve you to have a business in this state or won't. I mean, that's a very insidious thing. You you can look at the businesses, not only Chick-fil-A, Hobby Lobby, others, people who are evangelical Christians or Catholics who conduct their businesses accordingly. And discrimination laws... Don't go so far as to say, for example, the case of the florist, florist in Michigan, I think it was, who had a number of gay employees who she knew were gay. And she said she was very good friends with them. She liked them. She treated them equally and fairly. But when she was asked to participate in a wedding, that's when she said, no, I cannot do that. I'm not saying I won't sell you flowers because you're gay. I'm not saying that I won't do your funeral. But I cannot be involved in your wedding as a principle based on my religion. And she was excoriated in the public for doing that. But that is her First Amendment right. So this would simply codify it. Provide some defense. Let's take some questions. One of the concerns that I see in this country is like a breakdown of federalism, where you have the federal government imposing its will across all the states. When it comes to like the definition of marriage, you had tens and hundreds of thousands of people who voted for legislators and people at constitutional conventions within the states who would then say, in this state, marriage is defined as one man and one woman. And then you have five federal judges, Supreme Court judges, but five judges who then impose this federal rule across all of the states. And that's, you know, contrary to what the Constitution and the Founding Fathers had. They wanted to have the states have these experimentals, you know, and the states could work these things out. And now you have the federal government imposing itself in areas where it had not done before. That's why the Supreme Court nominees and justices are going to be so critical in this upcoming election. And that is something to look at very carefully, what both candidates have said about the kind of justices that either side would would put forward to be the next justice. I mean, it's the same thing happened in Roe versus Wade, right? You had five men basically decide for the entire country, overturning every state pro-life law in the, in the country. And every most every state except for New York and Colorado and California had really pretty strict abortion laws. But the people of each state decided what they wanted for their state. And with Roe, one decision, every one of those laws was overturned. Same thing with marriage. I mean, look, we, we live in a state here now. I was just thinking this. In Catholic, Catholic Charities in the state of Illinois, for 100 years we did adoptions. We, we can't do adoptions anymore. I mean, in one fell swoop, we can't do adoptions. And if you don't think marriage is, is not going to be the next thing down the road, I, I think you better start thinking about that because we are discriminating. We will only marry a man and a woman. Okay? And, and Cardinal George wrote a column about three years ago where he, where he talked about things like, if you had told me yeah. two years ago 
the Catholic Charities would no longer be able right. to do adoptions, I would have told you you were crazy. If you had told me that our hospitals were going to be required to do X, Y, and Z, I would have told you you were nuts. And he said, and look, it's all happened. Yeah. And he said, go back and read that column. It said, oh, I wish I brought it with me because it was, you talk about somebody who was being prophetic. He was being absolutely prophetic. And it's, and it's not going to get any better if we have a Supreme Court justice who doesn't believe in all the First Amendment protections. Just as a follow-up now, does, does your organization or other Catholic organizations have any view towards, in, uh, I think it was, was it Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution that says that if you're in a situation where the federal government is abusing its privileges and powers, that the states would have the right to call a new national constitutional convention? Because it seems like now we're in an age where we're post-constitution. It doesn't seem like the federal government obeys the constitution in any way. And now the states, enough states advocate for having a new national constitutional convention that we could perhaps try and address some of these federal abuses that we have seen. My reaction to that is, is twofold. The first is no, I, it's not the, I'm not aware of it being discussed. And I say yet, because I don't think we're there yet, but I think we're on the path. Yeah, I, I, I understand the premise of your, your concerns. My other thought is this. In Illinois, every 10 years, there's a question about whether they should reconvene the Constitutional Convention. In 1970, that's the last time the Illinois Constitution was rewritten. And then in 80, 90, and 2000, there's a question as to whether they should, they call it CONCON, where they have a convention to recall a convention. And we talked about it internally. And a lot of groups took positions. We never took a position, but the bishops in Illinois did discuss it. And it didn't appear to us at the time that it was raising the level that it might be likely that they would call a constitutional. But I got to tell you, if we did, we probably would have taken the position not to. The reason being, at least in Illinois, we thought net-net, we had more to lose than to gain. I'm not making that case at the national level. But all I'm doing is putting that thought out there because I understand your concerns. I get it. I'm with you. But I think in order to do that, you have to evaluate what could possibly happen if we did that. I don't know. But, yeah, I, I hear you. And, and to your point, as, as to follow up on Mary said, yeah, there's something wrong in this country when we're sitting here talking about, geez, maybe I should vote for this person because the justices he'll appoint will reflect this position. Call me naive, but at one point in time, I think justice was, were supposed to be impartial and above that. Something's wrong with the system, because I'm as guilty as, as you are. I mean, I'm looking at the court, too, and I'm only looking at the Supreme Court. I'm looking at the lower courts, because they're just as important as the Supreme Court. I mean, it fetters all the way down. We've seen that. Those are direct presidential Those are really tough, too. The so, lower federal courts, so... It's a pro yeah, I, I'm, I'm just as concerned. On your politician list there that were getting money from this other group. Personal PAC? Some of them didn't have that stated under them. Were they asked the questionnaire and did not? A lot of them, I know, do not answer the questionnaires. Right. So we don't know. How can we find out if a certain individual incumbent is getting that super PAC money? The list I gave you are those people who have responded to the personal PAC questionnaire. They did so in a matter satisfactory to personal PAC. So they responded, and they responded in such a way that they get the personal PAC endorsement. So if they're not on the list, other happened. They didn't respond. They, res they responded negatively. We don't know. 
it, quite frankly, it's almost immaterial in some ways. They cleared the first bar, if you will, in my opinion. The fact that women in the Catholic Church continue to have more influence, a stronger influence, what's confusing, and you mentioned truth, is that after the conclusion of the recent primaries, I was watching television, and on one of the panel shows, they were analyzing the certain votes in different areas and different factions of people. And they mentioned the Catholic woman's vote was tremendous. It was also tremendous, and I believe the percentage was 54% for abortion. They, they, they attributed the reason for it to be that high, the Catholic women, was because of the abortion situation. So with that said, it's confusing. If I, if I could just point out, so way back, there was a University of Michigan poll in 1972, so the year before Roe was decided, asking people's viewpoints on abortion. Women scored much higher on the pro-life scale than men did, okay? Then you fast forward all the way till 1992. Life Magazine did a poll. Bonnie, you might remember this one as well, where, again, women just statistically much more likely to be pro-life than men. In fact, the person statistically, just based on all the different surveys in the aggregate, most likely to support legal abortion in its extreme, so all nine months for any reason, is a white male who makes more than $100,000 a year, is the most likely person to support legal abortion, whereas a black or Hispanic woman is the most likely to oppose legalized abortion. And in fact, the poll that was taken just after the Democratic Party back in July, there was a Marist Institute poll, so it was July of 2016, which showed that questioning people about how they felt about publicly funding abortions given the Democratic Party's new plank, um, those most likely to be pro-life were black and Latino women. So I would have to sort of see the study. There was, a, there was an article, Bob and I discussed this on a radio show two weeks ago, big headline in the Washington Post, Donald Trump has a Catholic problem, okay? So I thought, oh, wow, and it said like 71% of all yeah. Catholics were going to yeah. vote for Hillary Clinton. Yeah. So I said, oh, my, I've never seen anything like this. So I, you know, delve into the poll. And, well, sure enough, if you look at a church-going non-person of color, so a Caucasian Catholic who goes to church every Sunday, it's actually pretty much a dead heat, okay, between Hillary Clinton. The, the, the people that, that Donald Trump in the Catholic Church has a problem with are Hispanics, and that would be understandable given some of his very controversial remarks about building walls and about breaking up families by deportation. You can understand why that would be a concern to many of our Hispanic brothers and sisters. So you, you can take some of these polls and really skew them. I would have to see the poll and really take a look at it to see. I'm part of a really great group of women called the Catholic Women's Forum, all really based, I mean, these are women who are doctors and lawyers and PhD theologians and PhD philosophers, and we're, we're all united around the, the one issue of pro-life. So there is a very strong, outspoken pro-life Catholic women's voice. Does that mean to say there's not women on the other side? Absolutely not. I'm not disagreeing with you. Though when I, when I see these polls that suggest that really the majority of Catholic women support abortion, again, you also have to look at whether or not they were actually practicing Catholics. That has a huge influence on whether or not you accept the church's teachings or you don't. So I, I would challenge that number. I would love to see if you wanted to shoot me a line or something, if you know exactly where you could find the source, I would love to look at it. Was it on like The View or something? Was it on like The View? Because that would like, you could dismiss that almost, almost immediately. Although, can I just tell you just one quick aside? I never watched The View, but I was folding laundry and flipped on the TV and it was on. And do you know Joy Behar was talking about 
They, had, they couldn't, they had this house that they couldn't sell. And she said, yes, yeah, so somebody told, she has not set foot in a Catholic church in, I don't know, 25 years. She was raised a Catholic, but doesn't pray. To put this statue of St. Joseph in the yard. And she said, do you know I got an offer this week on my house? And then Whoopi Goldberg chimes in and says, yeah, you know, you pray to St. Anthony when you lose things. I thought, oh my God, Armageddon is coming. I've got these two weeks. So no one's beyond God reaching them, right? So I thought maybe that's a little correct. I mean, here they are talking about St. Joseph and St. Anthony on The View, not the people you would expect. So anyway. Yeah, just another comment, a follow-up to that. Church-going Catholics, always the, the poll results are always different. The other poll result that's different is, is married versus single women. That also skews it too. But I, I, I don't know about the 54% number. I'm not arguing with it. There is a lot of work to be done, though, to your point. And, and there's a notion out there that I hear this in Springfield from lawmakers. Oh, yeah, personally, I'm against it. Yeah, my wife or my daughter or my family, of course I'm opposed to it. But it's needed out there for this person in their mind's eye that for, they, they perceive they've been sold that it's a public good, if you will, and that it's needed for that option. And as Mary indicated, most of that, those people that they're thinking about are, are less well off financially, the poor. So I think the challenge for us is going ahead is how do we address that? And it, it is towards women. I mean, how do we present alternatives to women who are pregnant and alone? And I think that's the challenge for us as we go forward is how do we, how do we reach out to those people? I mean, crisis pregnancy centers do incredible work. They provide alternatives to women. How do we make those options more known such that that, that option is not as a public viewpoint is not even needed anymore. I mean, look, you know, this is a crass example, but we've kind of done it in some ways with seatbelts, right? Who today doesn't drive without a seatbelt? Smoking. There's a whole campaign against smoking. So we do undertake in the public cultural positions. And even like recycling. Like cycling. if I like, right. don't throw we the can plastic, do it with like my people. eight-year-old goes, mom, why aren't you? And I'm looking at it like, oh my gosh, but it's so ingrained in them from the time they're little now that we recycle things that are plastic and that we don't litter. So some kind of campaign that would really, I, th- I think to your point, Bob, it, it can be done. Right. It can be done. It can be done. We need to be better and more strategic about our approach. Actually, following up a little bit on what you said as far as a campaign to, uh, to sway public opinion, but is there any effort either in Illinois or statewide? We talked about Catholics doing this, Catholics doing that, but with uniting with other Christian denominations and groups, particularly the evangelicals sure. who think very much like us. Yeah, they do. And yeah. Is there any efforts to unite at a whole Christian front, not just a Catholic front, but a Christian front against some of these things? today representing the Catholic bishops, and I'm probably my Catholic hat, but we work closely with, and it depends on the issue. I work with a lot of groups, depending on the issue, but uh, on these issues that we were talking about, some of them, like the life issue, marriage issue, Mary mentioned in passing the Orthodox Jewish community. They're, they're with us on almost everything, believe it or not. Well, One I'm of my best about friends the, are there. The black pastors on the marriage issue. Right. The black African-American Protestant pastors. When, we, when there was an effort to redefine marriage and unfortunately was successful, our best allies were the large mega pastors in Chicago, some of these names you may have heard of, Bishop Trotter of Holy Spirit Church, who's got a 10,000-person congregation, Reverend Senator James Meeks, who was both a reverend and a senator. And so when I talk to him, I'm always like, am I, are you the reverend or my senator? So he is, uh, he is reverend at Salem Baptist Church, congregation over 10,000 people. 
And so he was very outspoken and, and quite frankly, did, did incredible work on, on marriage and trying to keep marriage as defined, especially with the African-American community. So we do work with those groups. And on the life issues, the evangelicals we do work with. The Orthodox Jews, not on the, on the life issue, but on marriage. So we do, we do work with them. Is it a coordinated public thing? No, it's not. But at least at the state level, like lobbying and who you're going to reach out to, we, we do work together quite closely. We have to. Yeah, I, I talk to those guys all the time, Illinois Citizens for Life. Reverend Bob Vandenbosch, you may have heard of him, and so there's a, there's a number of them that are out there that we that we that we do try to work with. Yes, it's it's funny from my work in the pro-life movement. I always find that particularly some of the smaller Protestant congregations kind of feel like it's kind of pointless for them to get involved because like the Catholics do everything. I think this is, when I was the spokesperson for the Chicago March for Life, so there's the March for Life in Washington, D.C., around the anniversary of Roe, but we, we also have a local march here in Chicago. I think, I'm, I don't want to put words in their mouths, but you do get the sense that they feel like Catholics have kind of taken over some issues, and so therefore, well, they're like, well, you guys kind of do that, and so they're not as, like, involved and enthusiastic, because I think they feel like, you know, we'll, they'll kind of just get suppressed by all the Catholic people who come out in big droves. So it's kind of, it was just kind of interesting, some of the conversations. And I said, no, you're very welcome. We want you to come. But they felt like they just hadn't been invited, like they weren't supposed to be included. So it's really odd when you actually, like, sit down and talk to the person. And they're like, oh, you would want us to come? I said, oh, of course we would. They're like, wow, because we thought this was like a Catholic thing. Pope's not going to be there. You don't have to, you know. I mean, it was very funny how their perspective was, was just kind of skewed. On the issue of the First Amendment, with the Lyndon Johnson gag order gift in 1954. Did you realize that that was becoming an issue in this election? It surprisingly hasn't been. I am, for those of you who don't know, the question is about the Lyndon Johnson Amendment. I am by far an expert on this, but basically as a prohibition, in layman's terms, what it means is that back in the 60s, the tax code was changed such that it prohibits the churches, a church, a 501c3 church, not-for-profit church, if you will, from engaging in partisan political activity. And I was watching, I think it was Trump's speech, is one of the first time I ever heard it, at the convention, when he said, oh yeah, if I'm elected, I'm going to undo that because you shouldn't be hampered by engaging in the political process like other secular groups. And it's the first time I heard it. I didn't even know it was coming. And I have heard very little about it since he announced that. It, it really I don't, hasn't taken hold, but maybe I don't know. So... I, I haven't heard anything. Go ahead. Evangelical, the gentleman over there was yeah. asking about it. It was a 46-minute conference with the nominee of the Republican Party. That okay. Is, yeah. I have it written here. Okay. And it's, very, it's on YouTube. Okay. I have 15 copies of the Johnson Amendment if people would like a copy of this. So there was a conference call, I'm sure, with the campaign <laughs> and with evangelical leaders in order to motivate them probably to get engaged and, and right. support that. I don't know if we would be necessarily supportive of that. Yeah, um, my sense is that the, the Catholic Church, at least, is more comfortable on espousing what I just talked about, the tenets of the church's teachings, the, trying to frame issues in a moral framework, and urging people to make their consciences according to the faith, the Holy Spirit, becoming familiar with the background. I would think that the Catholic Church would probably stick with this regardless of whether the Johnson Amendment, because, I mean, let's be honest, I mean, you could go to one church and have a priest say one thing and another engaged partisan advocating for somebody else. I don't think the Catholic Church would ever go for that, especially after Pope. Right, uh, and, and, and you have to kind of think about what our liturgical life is like, right? I mean, the sacrifice yeah. of the Mass is not a moment when we're talking about 
what's going on in politics almost exclusively. We're here to praise and worship God. That's very distinct. Protestant congregations have a very different form of worship. They do not have a sacramental theology, so it's very different. And I always think of Cardinal George often would say, you know, there's no candidate in the world who's going to come close to what Jesus Christ would say about everything. So to try to tie ourselves to a particular party or a candidate never worked before. It's not likely to work again. So I don't see us as Catholics being particularly, I would agree with you, being supportive of that. Well, then are, are you saying that it's not tying your hands on the First Amendment? Because there was talk earlier from the platform that you're concerned about the First Amendment. Does this not, doesn't the Johnson Act tie your hands with the First Amendment, and aren't you concerned about I mean, in terms of free speech? Yes. Yeah. What, what the restriction involves is it's the use of, it's receiving tax-exempt status. So they don't want, what the, what the act is meant to prohibit is tax-exempt status, and then those groups that take that tax-exempt status endorsing or particularly opposing candidates, right? So can we not talk about political? Of course not. We can talk about issues. I mean, Bob and I can stand here in a Catholic church and talk about abortion, or we can talk about immigration. We can talk about issues and let people draw their own conclusions. But what we can't say is St. Patrick's Church in Wadsworth supports Hillary Clinton or supports Donald Trump. And, and our pastor, your pastor, cannot tell you how to vote, right? We, we, we leave, we talk about issues and principles and moral imperatives that we believe have been given to us by Christ through his church. And then the way you vote is between you and your confessor, right? I mean, your conscience and, 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 you know, whoever your spiritual director is, it's not up for your pastor to tell you who to vote. Does that make more sense? Does that clarify it? I just think, you know, and again, our worship, we, we don't deal with issues and with candidates in the same way you might see, like, one of the large black megachurches yeah. uh, that Bob referenced, right? right? But it doesn't mean if there's, like, a particular bill. Like, the Freedom of Choice Act is a, is a perfect example of this. If you remember that from, I don't know, about 10 years ago, we had that postcard campaign. This was a parish that was very involved in it, asking the president to veto the Freedom of Choice Act because it was such an... We can get involved in issues and on particular acts of legislation. All that sort of said, that's all free game. It's endorsing or opposing particular candidates or people. Does that make sense? So it's, yeah. it's a little narrower. I have two-part things. One is a comment on what the earlier question was, and it relates to 501c3 corporations, and the Clinton Global Initiative is a 501c3 corporation. As a different point, though, regarding Illinois, can you give us some insight into this? I call it this fair map amendment. It has to do with yeah. laying out the legislative districts differently. Yeah, uh, very disappointing. So, 0 for 2. Two separate occasions, a group solicited a number of signatures to amend, put on the ballot, the question of how the lines are drawn to elect our state senators and our state representatives. So, Wadsworth is in Giselle's district and in uh, the Melinda Bush district, okay? Somebody drew these lines to make sure that, okay, we're in this race, and then somebody said, uh, on Wadsworth Road, I'm making this up, we're on this side, and on the other side is another district. Somebody's got to draw those lines. In Illinois, what has happened over the past two times is that the majority party, the Democratic Party, has been able to draw the lines. And so what this group was trying to do, the Fair Maps Amendment Group, is to collect signatures to say, we need a better process, because this process is not working. They're alleging that the lawmakers are choosing their voters the voters not choosing the lawmakers. And so I think it was two or four years ago, I'm losing my memory, they collected an ample number of signatures, a required number of signatures. A lawsuit was filed 
The lawsuit was filed by the Democratic Party. The lead attorney was a friend of mine, Mike Casper, who is a private sector lobbyist who used to work for the Speaker. Went before a judge, and I know you're going to be shocked to hear this, but the judge found that the process that they used two years ago was not constitutional, therefore it didn't make it on the ballot two years ago. So the group went back to the drawing board, we thought, and drew a different proposal, went back and collected another 500,000 signatures, said, okay, now it's, it's, it should be good enough. Uh, a recent court decision came back and said, no, it's not acceptable. They appealed to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court, by a vote of, I think it was five to four or uh, four to three, I think four to three, said, no, it's not acceptable this time again because the way the Constitution reads is it's amending the structure and the procedure of the legislature, and that is unconstitutional. The unconstitutional provision, they said, was that the Auditor General, who's a separately elected entity, was put in on this fair maps procedure to help arbitrate it, and the court said that was not constitutional. This has created a lot of animosity and a lot of bad feelings for, by people who went through the process not once, thought they had uh, an acceptable proposal for the second proposal, and that was struck down again. The Tribune, and you quoted Justice Thomas and in the minority, saying that this was an example of tyranny, this has gone too far. I don't know what to say. It, it was a 4-3 vote. One vote would have swayed it. Uh, that wasn't en enough to change it. So we are stuck with the same process that we've had for the past upteen years since 1970, unfortunately. It's unfortunate. I don't know what to say. I think it should make you mad. It should make you angry. It should compel you to get more involved and, and change this process because it does need to be changed, in my opinion. My question is just guidelines on just how to compete with two morally dilemmas. And I want to give two examples. But And I may answer my own question. It's that maybe it's just conscience and prayer. But you mentioned the Affordable Care Act. Church took a position because of abortions, okay, rightly so. But you also have people like with pre-existing conditions that there was a limit on. Sure. If that wasn't passed, that's a concern to me, would have died also. And let me give you another one, abortions. The number of abortions have gone down in the last five years or so, but most studies have shown that's probably because of federally funded access to contraceptions, both positions against the church. So what do you do in those situations? I'd argue with the second aspect of the reason why the number of abortions has gone down. I don't know if there's any empirical evidence to suggest that it is access to contraception. There's more evidence to suggest, in fact, that it's actually that teenagers are not are waiting to have sex. That's actually a larger percentage that went up, actually, rather than the use of, of contraceptives. The first part of your question is, is how to, I'm not sure if I, what, what, I think you look at that paragraph 36 on faithful citizenship, you decide if you think based on familiarizing yourself with the church's teaching, become familiar with the backs, facts and background and praying about it. I think you have two options. You know, the first option in 36 is to, is to not vote, not vote for either. I think that's morally acceptable. And then the second, the second option to you is to evaluate in your mind, is there one all things being equal, if you will, that saying of the lesser of two evils. Can you accept the lesser of two evils? I, I can't tell you what to do, and I'd be a fool to try to do that. I think that's something that you have to, like I said, exercise and form your conscience. 
And then go back and look at the party platforms. As I, if you just Google Democrat and Republican Party, I think it was our Sunday Visitor. Yeah, did, a, did our, our Sunday Visitor, which is a Catholic newspaper, national, very well respected, very balanced, did sort of an analysis of the two different party platforms. So look at the platforms and say, I'm, sometimes it helps just to write things down on a piece of paper and put one in one column and one in the other and and then really just ask the Lord to guide you as to what his choice would be given these two choices. Weighed is, your conscience and you've done your... And you know, at it's least, not a perfect world. I think what's going on. And by the way, I've heard lawmakers tell me this too. In society, writ large, I think what's going on is we are having, as a society, an inability to solve our problems by ourselves. And I think what's happening is that we're turning to government and the state, writ large, in order to at least discuss and address and come up with solutions to some of those problems. And so, as Cardinal George used to say, and I think it's pretty self-explanatory, is as the state grows bigger and bigger, as they become more and more involved in our lives, in many ways, the individual shrinks and religious liberties shrink. And I, my personal opinion is that's what's happening writ large. And so part of this is our collective problem that I think we're turning to the state far more frequently than we did in the past. And Mary touched on that a little bit. And I think that's what's going on. And so to your question and to your point, I think that's what, that's go, what's going on in society. How do we stem that tide and how do we bring it back? Gosh, if I knew that, I'd probably be a millionaire, Well, and right? I think on a, on a micro level, and this is an issue, of course, for us in the Chicago area, because of the vast numbers of murders now that we've had in the city of Chicago, we've, we've, we've now hit, like, what, a 20-year record? I mean, like, Nash, international media outlets like the BBC, the British Broadcasting Corporation, came here to do a story about the last, not the, after the last murder in Chicago. But you talk to the police, and they'll say, our jobs aren't about policing anymore. We're not supposed to just be enforcing the law and preventing crime and helping to solve crime. Now we're supposed to be social workers. We're supposed to step in and be like foster dads or moms. We're supposed to be health care advisors and mental health workers. And they're not trained to do that. They're trained to enforce laws and to fight crime and to all the other things that they became police officers for. But they are basically being called in to step in and do the role of the family. And the schools everywhere, the schools are being called in and to take the role of the family. The police are being called in and to take the role of the family. And when you look at the market increase of violence, the, the out-of-wedlock birth rate among some communities of, of color is upwards of 80% now. And there was a great book that was written I think, in 1996, so exactly 20 years ago, called Fatherless America by David Blankenhorn, who was a sociologist, who talked about what happens when there is not a father in the home? And the presence, just the, the hormonal, if you will, presence of another male in a household helps to curb young male aggression. And when that male is not present, the aggression among young males will grow, and it's not checked in any way, shape, or form. And this is what the police will tell you. We can tell in about 10 seconds a kid who's growing up in a house where there's a mother and a father and a kid who is not. And again, and then it all ties into the issue of marriage. What does it say when we say that marriage can be anything just depending on people's feelings? When it's not the union of a man and a woman, and men and women aren't different, and that the biological differences mean anything, children always suffer, and then the society becomes more out of control, and it becomes more violent. But again, it's all, it really all goes back to this issue of the nuclear family and, and care for the poor, which is, I think, kind of where we started. So maybe sort of a nice place to end. Thank you for listening to A Catholic Focus on the 2016 election on WSFI 88.5 FM Catholic Radio. For more information about this or any program, visit wsficatholicradio.org.